A reading from the book of Numbers. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. The word of God for the people of God. Startle us, O God, with your truth. Open our hearts to your grace and love and the encouragement we find in your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A lot of the time a sermon will begin with a story, an example, an illustration, something to suggest right up front that what you are about to hear is guaranteed to be relevant and will have meaning for your life. Today, I'm going to take a different approach. I still believe that one of the reasons we come to church is to tap into ancient wisdom. I believe that if we dig deeply and curiously into this collection of ancient stories we call the Bible, that there is something important to be found, something that is worth our attention. I have a hunch you're here because somewhere inside you believe that too. So today, I'm going to open the pages of the Bible as we have and tell you a story from the book of Numbers. It is one of the appointed texts for this Sunday, which the Presbyterian Church and others call the Day of Pentecost. This story comes from deep in the pages of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, the five scrolls, or what our Jewish friends call Torah, or the books of the law. This part of the Bible is challenging reading. Many well-meaning people who make a decision to read the Bible from cover to cover will make it quite well through the pages of Genesis and Exodus, and then will give up somewhere in the book of Leviticus before ever making it to the book of Numbers. Some of this reading is hard going. But this story is worth reading. So I'm going to tell it to you, and I think the relevancy, if it's there, will reveal itself along the way. So first, 
some context, because we don't spend a lot of time in this book. The book of Numbers. What the heck does that title come from? Numbers, or arithmoi, as it is called in the Greek of the early Christian era, this comes from, it calls attention to two lists in the book of Numbers, two censuses, two countings of the people of Israel that take place in the book. There is one of these countings, one census at the beginning of the book, and then there's another one in the middle of the book. These countings frame the plot of the story, hence the book of Numbers. The more descriptive title of this book comes from the original Hebrew translation, which calls the book Bemidbar, or In the Wilderness, a phrase that opens the book. And that's what this book is. This book is a story of what happens to the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, some of you will know that the Bible begins with the book of Genesis, a collection of these epic stories that help explain where the Israelites came from and how they came to be a people who were eventually enslaved in Egypt. That's how Genesis ends. And then Exodus is the story of their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And after they are set free from slavery, God's people cross the Red Sea out of Egypt and they will wander in the wilderness for 40 years in search of their new home in the Promised Land. Numbers, Bemidbar, is the story of the 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness story is divided into two distinct parts. The first part is the story of the generation of people who are led out of Egypt and into freedom. These are the people who remember what things were like back in Egypt. The oppression of their taskmasters, the order to make bricks without straw, you might remember that. These people remember the miraculous plagues God brought as an incentive to Pharaoh to let the people go. And they remember crossing through the parted waters of the Red Sea. And they remember receiving manna, bread from heaven in the wilderness that allowed them to live. They saw these things with their own eyes. A new generation is born in the wilderness. They have not witnessed any of these things. But they learn about them in the stories they are told by their elders. As the story goes, the first generation will die in the wilderness. And it is the second generation that will make it to the promised land. And the two censuses, the two numbers that frame this story, they define, they mark the difference between these two generations and their stories. Now, here's the great irony of this story in the wilderness. It is the second generation, and not the first one, who show incredible faith in God. The second generation, not the first one, shows great faith in God. Now, you would think the opposite. You would think that the people who witnessed all of these wonderful things that God had done for them, you would think that they would be endlessly devoted to God, who had done so much for them. But the story suggests otherwise. 
The first generation, they complain endlessly about how difficult life is in the wilderness. And they frequently fall away from faith in God. These are the people who make golden calves to worship. They complain about life in the wilderness. And they keep asking Moses, would you please just take us back to Egypt? And that generation never makes it to the promised land. And you get the idea that they can't make it to the promised land, not because the promised land isn't there, but that they can't find it because they don't really believe in it. They don't wander for 40 years because their compass is broken. They wander for 40 years because they just can't seem to read what it says. And it's only the second generation that has the faithfulness, the, the vision, if you will, to get to the promised land. Now, if that irony does not make sense to you, I want you to consider for a moment the time in which we ourselves are living. Many of us are aware that we live, that we are perhaps a bit stuck in a culture marked by some things that we don't like very much. Rampant materialism media that floods us with violence and is overly sexualized, a country where people have a whole lot of stuff, but where mental illness and loneliness and poor out, out health outcomes as a result of both continue to grow. There is so much wealth and there is so much inequality and waste. And many of us also have a sense that if we could only simplify our lives, if we could only get back a little bit more to basics, that we would be much happier than we are. But often, we have no idea how to do that. We feel trapped in the life we've got. So we keep on doing things the way that we've always done them. The Israelites knew that slavery in Egypt had been awful. They knew that intellectually. But slavery in Egypt was, as the saying goes, it was the devil they knew. And what they feared even more was the uncertainty of a life of freedom, because it was unknown to them. For all these reasons, it is only the second generation, the generation who have no memory of Egypt. These are the people who are finally able to break free of the old life and welcome a new way of being. And in the middle of this larger narrative that I've been telling you, there is a shorter one we heard this morning. In chapter 11 of the book of Numbers, the Israelites are once again complaining to Moses, take us back to Egypt. Remember that God has been providing food for these people, this manna that falls from heaven with the dew every new morning. And it can be made into cakes that give them all the sustenance they could possibly need and in a cruel ancient world, they have no need to hunt for it or farm for it. 
and quite importantly, they are not enslaved anymore. They are free. But they keep complaining to Moses. In Numbers 11, verse 6, they say, Remember, we remember, Moses, the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all for us but this manna to look at. God's people can't find the promised land because they can't see what God is trying to show them. They remind me of a modern family in our own world on some wonderful wilderness adventure. Maybe they're on a safari in Africa or a whale-watching tour. They are surrounded by all of the beauty and grandeur of God's creation. A terrific guide prepares wonderful, wholesome meals for them three times a day. The kids can't stop asking for Sour Patch Kids. And mom and dad can't stop wondering when they're going to find a Starbucks. And they keep missing the amazing landscape all around them because they are constantly trying to find a cell phone signal so that they can catch up on cable news and celebrity gossip. And you feel sorry for them. But if we're honest, we can see bits and pieces of our own lives in the ways they are acting. Well, back in the ancient desert, the Israelites have the same problem. So Moses takes 70 elders from the people. He takes them out to the tent where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, and there God agrees to meet them. God's Spirit comes to rest upon them. While they're out there in the tent, they have an epiphany, an aha moment, an experience of grace. And for a moment, they start to see things as they really are. They bow down and worship God. They recommit to uh, finding the promised land. And here's the really sad part of the story. As soon as they leave the tent, the spirit departs from them and they return to the camp unchanged. It is as if that family I was telling you about on the African safari imagined that something really amazing happens, such that they finally put down their cell phones and they are drawn into the wonder that is around them. They are swept up into something that feels really profound and life-changing. And then they get on the, the, the plane and they go home and everything goes back to the way it was before. And two weeks later, they feel stuck and unhappy once again, and they get little more than a passing yearning to get back to the happiness they once knew in Africa. And that's essentially what happens to the elders among the Israelites, but there's this other thing that happens too. There are these two other people, these other elders. Their names are Eldad and Medad. And they don't go to the tent for the meeting. They stay back at the camp. 
And one way or another, because you can't really keep the Spirit of God locked up in a tent, one way or another there's some uh, God's Spirit that kind of leaks out of the tent and back to the camp. And it falls upon Eldad and Medad, and there, right in the camp, they start to see God's amazing work that is going on around them in the wilderness. They can suddenly see how good the manna is, and they can remember how awful it was in Egypt, and they want to get to the promised land, and they start talking about it with their friends. But the elders who went to the tent, they're so stuck in their bad attitudes that Joshua, who is a leader among them, he goes to Moses and says, did you know Moses? There are these two guys, Eldad and Medad, and they're back talking to people about God, and they didn't even go to the tent. And Moses, who has plenty of failings and frustrations of his own, but who never totally falls away from God, Moses thinks about it for a moment, and then he says to Joshua, wouldn't it be great if all of us were more like Eldad and Medad? Today is known as the day of Pentecost in the church. Some of you are lifelong churchgoers, the elders who always show up in the tent. And some of you will remember that on this day we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit coming down to the disciples of Jesus. We usually read a story from the beginning of the book of Acts, and we talk about the Holy Spirit coming down like fire from heaven, causing the disciples to speak miraculously in languages they do not know. It is a great story. I've told it many times, probably enough that many of you, like me, forget about its power. So today, instead, I chose this more obscure story. It reminds us that sometimes the Spirit of God does its work not by fire from heaven or speaking in tongues, and not just here in church or on some distant safari. Sometimes God's Spirit sneaks out of the tent and changes our lives in little ways we did not see coming. finding God's presence in the everyday life we share. That's going to be the focus of my sermons for the next couple of months as we talk about what I'll call sacred community. My prayer today, especially in times that can be quite difficult, is that God's Spirit will be among us in the movements of our everyday lives, in our struggles to put down our cell phones and our lattes and really be attentive to one another and to the yearnings deep in our hearts to know God more, to embrace in fullness the blessings of our families and friends and neighbors and this community of Christ in which we all share.
My prayer is that in each day that God has given us, we'll try to move a little bit closer to the promised land. Amen.